Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. When Larry Page and Sergey Brin first met, they didn't like each other very much. In the summer of 1995, Larry Page was considering a transfer to Stanford University's graduate program in computer science. Sergey Brin was already two years into that same program, and it just so happened that he had signed up to be a tour guide of sorts to potential students. So one summer day, Bryn showed Paige and a group of other potential Stanford students around the Bay Area. Paige would later say of his guide, I thought he was pretty obnoxious. He had really strong opinions about a lot of things, and I guess I did too. Bren would later agree, saying, We both found each other obnoxious. And yet, it wasn't hatred that the two shared, as much as it was the coming together of two strong, fiercely proud intellects. The pair might have stepped on each other's toes a bit, but at the same time there was a degree of frisson to the encounter. Bryn would recall later, We spent a lot of time talking to each other, so there was something there. We kind of had a bantering thing going. On the surface, it might not have seemed like Paige and Bryn would have anything in common. Paige was a Midwesterner, born in East Lansing, Michigan, on March 26, 1973 while Bryn was born in Moscow in the Iron Curtain-era USSR on August 21st, 1973, only emigrating to the United States when he was six years old. Page was reserved, quiet, contemplative. Bryn was outgoing, gregarious, loud. Page was a deep thinker, a visionary, and Bryn was a problem-solver an engineer's engineer. But the two had more in common than anyone knew that first day. For one thing, they both came from academic families. Page's father was a pioneering computer science professor at Michigan State University, where his mother was also a computer programming instructor. Bryn's father was a mathematics professor at the University of Maryland, and his mother, a researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Larry and Sergey both grew up to respect research, academic study, mathematics, and especially computers. And it turned out that they both had inquisitive minds that believed in the power of knowledge to overcome any obstacle, intellectual or practical. Each had been inculcated into this spirit of intellectual fearlessness at a young age. Early Google employee Marissa Mayer 
has famously insisted, quote, You can't understand Google unless you know that both Larry and Sergey were Montessori kids. In a Montessori school, you go paint because you have something to express, or you just want to do that that afternoon, not because the teacher said so. This is baked into how Larry and Sergey approach problems. They're always asking, why should it be like that? It's the way their brains were programmed early on. End quote. For both Larry and Sergey, their intellectual fearlessness overlapped in such a way that their conflicting personalities actually ended up complementing each other. When Page officially joined Stanford for the 95-96 academic year, he and Bryn ended up becoming close. Friends took to calling the duo Larry and Sergey, all one word, suggesting that they were somewhat inseparable. The pair would end up debating endlessly on topics ranging from philosophy to computing to movies, two equally matched polymaths thrilling to the intellectual joust. Bryn's particular hobby, or project, was creating a software program that could provide movie recommendations based on the tastes and viewing habits of other people who had seen similar films. Sounds not unlike what Netflix later perfected. And Page's particular obsession was dreaming of a system of networked autonomous cars that would ferry people around. So it's probably no coincidence that Google nowadays is working on driverless cars. Even though they were the same age, Bryn was academically two years ahead of Page because he had completed his undergraduate computer science degree at age 19 and had gone on to ace all of Stanford's required doctoral program exams on the very first try. But despite this head start, and despite being the recipient of a National Science Foundation fellowship, which would allow him to basically do anything he wanted, Bryn had stalled out in his quest to nail down a dissertation topic. Of course, the newly arrived Page would also need to decide on his dissertation at some point, so it ended up that fate pushed the pair even closer together. In January of 1996, Larry and Sergey ended up working in the same office, room 360 in the just-completed William Gates Computer Science Building on Stanford's campus. That building was, of course, named for the founder of Microsoft, who had donated $6 million to the building's construction. All of his career, Bill Gates repeatedly predicted that one day, some student somewhere would found a company that would challenge Microsoft for dominance of the tech industry. His prediction turned out to be true, and that company would come from two students working in a building with his name on it. The World Wide Web had, of course, been a watershed for computer scientists, but also for data scientists, information scientists, mathematicians, the list is endless. For any number of fields, the web was an incredible boon, just from a research perspective. For a wide range of disciplines, 
the web now presented billions upon billions of data points for their research, all available and accessible for free, a corpus of information that was seemingly infinite. Larry Page would turn to the web to find a dissertation, not because he wanted to build a search engine, but because, for a mathematically inclined computer science graduate student, the web was where it was at in 1996. Page was struck by a fundamental truth about the web that is glaringly obvious when you just say it out loud. The web is built on links one page linking to another, one idea linking to another. But what occurred to Larry Page was that, as of yet, no one had bothered to analyze the structure of the link ecosystem in a comprehensive way. For example, it was possible to know that web page A linked to web page B because you could see the link, you could follow it. But what about the reverse? What pages had linked to web page A? There was no way to know. You couldn't follow a link stream backwards, only forwards. And that might seem trivial to consider, but Page began to wonder, if you analyzed all of the backlinks, if you mapped out the link structure of the entire web, what sort of insight might that sort of data give you? Page's intuition was that this might be more than just an interesting theoretical question. As he mauled over the idea with Bryn, their shared upbringing as the children of academics kicked in. Larry and Sergey knew the power of the academic citation. After all, their parents had published academic papers. They themselves intended to publish academic papers in order to earn their PhDs. And they knew that any academic paper worth its salt built its arguments by citing other academic papers and studies. In the world of academia, those citations acted like an accumulated number of votes from paper to paper and served to, over the years, accrue value to given ideas to essentially rank ideas based on the number of citations. The most cited papers were understood to be the most authoritative. As Page would later say, quote, It turns out, people who win the Nobel Prize have citations from 10,000 different papers. End quote. Well, what was a web link but a digital citation? If you analyze the links analyze the citations, you might be able to make inferences about the relative value of a given web page, and possibly even determine which page was more authoritative by analyzing the backlinks in the same way that counting the citations told you which academic paper was the definitive one. Larry Page wanted to map out the value of the web's connections by going backward through the link chain. Page went to his academic advisor, Terry Winograd, and asked for the money and machines that would allow him to map the web's links. He dubbed the initial project Backrub. 
When asked how much of the web he intended to map, Page replied, the whole web. Page would later say, in a sense, the web is this. Anyone can annotate anything very easily just by linking to it. It seemed kind of cool to gather all the links on the web and then reverse them. So, in March of 1996, Larry Page launched Backrub by sending his search bots, known as spiders, out into the web to find all the links. He started with a single page, the Stanford Computer Science Department homepage, and then fanned out, following link after link, cataloging them all, and then ranking web pages based on these link citations. And it was that ranking, that mathematical complexity, the complicated problem of determining which page was more valuable based on a combination of accumulated links, as well as the authority passed through from pages that link to other pages, that drew Sergey Brin to join the project. Larry and Sergey called their combined citation ranking system PageRank, either as an ode to Page himself or as an obvious descriptor of what the system was intended to do. Bryn would later say, quote, The idea behind PageRank was that you can estimate the importance of a web page by the web pages that link to it. We actually developed a lot of math to solve that problem. Important pages tended to link to important pages. We convert the entire web into a big equation with several hundred million variables, which are the page ranks of all the web pages, and billions of terms, which are all the links. End quote. Page would say, it's all recursive. In a way, how good you are is determined by who links to you, and who you link to determines how good you are. It's all a big circle, end quote. Larry and Sergey suddenly had a project that would make for a pretty interesting dissertation. And as soon as the pair looked at their results, they realized their intuition was dead on. The citation analogy worked beautifully. If you wanted to know what was the most authoritative page about a topic such as, say, windsurfing, backrub slash page rank could tell you. You would know, based on the accumulated links, of course, the sheer number of votes from other sites, but also from the authority passed on from other authoritative sites. Thanks to Bryn's math, largely linear algebra and something about the eigenvector of a weighted link matrix, for those of you that know what that means, citations from obviously important websites were more valuable than others. A link from some random person's personal webpage might be valuable, but a link from a professional windsurfer would be judged to be even more valuable. And a link from, say, Yahoo's homepage would be even more valuable still. It was at this point that the really interesting application for this little math project became obvious. Page would say later, quote, It was pretty clear to me and the rest of the group that if you have a way of ranking these things based not just on the page itself, but based on what the world thought of that page, 
that would be a really valuable thing for search, end quote. It turned out that the reason search engines had never really worked very well prior to PageRank was not because they were broken, but because they were missing the key innovation that Page and Brin had stumbled upon. Relevancy. If in 1997 you did a search for automobile company on even the best search engine at the time, which was most likely AltaVista, you'd find yourself probably disappointed because the websites of Ford, General Motors, or Toyota may or may not actually show up on that first page. It's not that AltaVista couldn't find those sites. It most certainly had. Ford.com or GM.com or Toyota.com were most likely in the list of tens of thousands of results that AltaVista had found. It was just that AltaVista had no way of surfacing the most relevant results to the top. So maybe the Ford webpage was on page three of the search results or page 300. PageRank solved this problem of relevancy, and that was the key. PageRank knew which sites were the most authoritative automobile sites already. And so when you combined its algorithmic prowess with the traditional tricks of information retrieval that all the search engines were already using, suddenly it all just worked. Indeed, as Page and Brin combined Backrub and PageRank with traditional search methods like analyzing on-page text, web page titles or meta tags, and especially parsing the so-called anchor text of a link. For example, someone who makes a link out of the words flower shop and then points it to a given website is really trying to tell you something. When they did that, they realized that PageRank was incredibly powerful. A search for New York newspaper, say, could now return you the New York Times or the New York Post as the very first listings not just any random newspaper website or the website for a New York-based cycling club or something. And in fact, Page and Brin discovered that their algorithm was indeed recursive, meaning that the more data they fed it, the more web pages it analyzed, the better it got. By tweaking the math even more, Larry and Sergey's search tool could reliably find people, locate the most obscure fact or data, and even answer questions. PageRank wasn't finding new things exactly, it was merely finding things in a better way. The earlier search engines were already getting the same results, they were already answering every query correctly, but it was finding the needle in the haystack and putting it at the top of the list that PageRank did better. As Rajiv Matwani, who was Bryn's academic counselor, said, quote, It wasn't that Page and Bryn sat down and said, Let's build the next great search engine. They were trying to solve interesting problems and stumbled upon some neat ideas. End quote. It was a good thing that Page and Bryn had not set out to build the next great search engine, because at the time, no one was really clamoring for one. In the late 90s, about the time that Page and Brin began refashioning Backrub slash PageRank into a search engine, 
They were living in a universe of major search players. Yahoo, Excite, Lycos, AltaVista, Ask Jeeves, MSN, and on and on. In a time when Yahoo had a $100 billion market cap, who needed another entrant into an already crowded space, no matter how superior that entrant might be? Fortunately, Page and Bren were not immediately business-focused. They were still teaching computer science classes in the hours that they weren't working on their project. They were academics, far more interested in defending a dissertation and publishing a paper on their research than starting a company around their idea. And so they produced that paper, called The Anatomy of a Large-Scale Hypertextual Web Search Engine, which was presented at a conference in Australia in May of 1998. And even when they published the paper, it wasn't immediately obvious that PageRank itself was a world changer. As often happens in the history of inventions and inventors, other search researchers had had similar eureka moments at around the same time. A computer scientist at Cornell named John Kleinberg hit upon a similar authority-focused eigenvector-based algorithm in late 1996 while working as an IBM research fellow. Also in 1996, an engineer named Robin Lee developed an algorithm named RankDex while working for Dow Jones. Lee would eventually return to his native China and use what he learned to eventually create Baidu, which is to this day the most popular search engine in that country. But if Page and Bryn initially stayed true to their chosen academic paths, that did not mean that they were blind to the financial possibilities inherent in their work. How could they have been? They were, after all, students at Stanford University, which had already incubated two quite successful search companies in Yahoo and Excite. And this was the late 90s. The dot-com bubble was in full swing. Students studying computer science in the heart of Silicon Valley couldn't help but notice what was going on all around them. As Tamara Munzer one of the students' sharing room 360 of the Gates building with Paige and Bren would recall, it was a hard time to stay in grad school. Every time you went to a party, you had multiple job offers, and they were all real. I had to re-decide every term not to leave, end quote. The obvious move was to license PageRank to one of the existing players, and indeed, this is what Page and Bryn attempted to do. They met with everyone from the Yahoo founders, Jerry Yang and David Philo, to another search pioneer, InfoSeek's Steve Kirsch, and none of them were interested. The closest Larry and Sergey came to making a deal was when Page wrote up an extensive proposal to Excite's leadership, suggesting that they replace excites existing algorithms with his. Doing so, he calculated, would generate an additional $47 million in revenue for the search engine each year. With my help, 
Page wrote in his proposal. This technology will give Excite a substantial advantage and will propel it to a market leadership position. All he asked for in exchange was a seemingly reasonable $1.6 million in cash and Excite stock. A nice little payday. And then he and Bryn would return to finishing their doctorate work. Excite countered with 750000 which Page and Bryn rejected. The failure on the part of the incumbent search players to scoop up the PageRank technology has become infamous in business lore as one of the great missed opportunities of all time. Larry Page has, on a few occasions, suggested that the search companies were simply myopic. Page has said, quote, They were becoming portals. We probably would have licensed it if someone gave us the money, but they were not interested in search. They did have horoscopes, though. End quote. As we know, because you've listened to episode 41, Excite CEO George Bell has a slightly different recollection, but one that is more than a little illuminating. From episode 41, here's Bell saying, quote, The thing that Larry insisted on, that we all do recall, is that Larry said, if we come to work for Excite, you need to rip out all the Excite technology and replace it with our search. And ultimately, that's, in my recollection, where the deal fell apart. End quote. This was Page and Bryn's intellectual fearlessness demonstrating itself for the first time in a competitive setting. The pair believed, knew, that they had a superior way of doing things, and so they thought nothing of going to an established search company and telling them that their existing products sucked. This brashness had the effect of basically insulting Excite. I mean, Excite was a company founded by brilliant Stanford computer scientists. As Bell points out, quote, we had hundreds of engineers at that point, end quote. Why should the company furlough their engineers just because two other engineers had come along with claims to be more brilliant? Bell claims that there was no way he could justify upsetting this existing talent, especially when some of them were founders of the company. Ultimately, I couldn't stomach the cultural risk that Larry insisted on, Bell has told us. But if Page and Bryn were confident, almost to the point of being arrogant, they certainly had plenty of reason to back up their brashness. In order to fine-tune their algorithm, the pair had needed plenty of real-world feedback, real-world data. So, starting in 1997, they had made the search engine available first on the Stanford network to other Stanford students and researchers, and then to the general public. Through nothing but word of mouth, the service grew increasingly popular, serving more than 10,000 queries per day by late 1998. Page and Bryn monitored the server logs and made tweaks to their algorithm based on the data that this provided. They eventually named their search service Google, a play on the word Google, which is a one followed by 100 zeros. The idea was to suggest that their search engine would be capturing the whole web, basically everything in existence. 
The name reflected the scale of what we were doing, Bryn said later. Google was not available, so Google became the URL of the public service. And the popularity of that service, combined with the vast computing resources eaten up by all the spidering and indexing and cataloging and ranking of web pages it required, meant that the Google project was rapidly outgrowing the scope of a simple research project. Even when it was housed on a single machine in a Stanford dorm room, Google was hogging large amounts of the university's bandwidth. Stanford was, as ever, incredibly accommodating to an idea that was born within its walls, but the institution's generosity had a practical and obvious ceiling. Larry Page would later say, quote, We're lucky there were a lot of forward-looking people at Stanford. They didn't hassle us too much about the resources we were using, end quote. But it was clear that if they wanted the Google experiment to continue, Page and Bryn would need more resources, more computers, more bandwidth, more people to actually work on the algorithm. And this all meant more money than a research budget, even a generous one, could provide. So the pair turned to another Stanford faculty advisor named David Cheriton. Cheriton introduced the pair to Andy Bechtelsheim, a successful entrepreneur who had founded Sun Microsystems while also a PhD student at Stanford. And one morning in late 1998, Page and Bryn met with Bechtelsheim at Cheriton's home. Page would recount the meeting later this way. Quote, David had a laptop on his porch in Palo Alto with an Ethernet connection. We did a demo, and Andy asked us a lot of questions. Then he said, well, I don't want to waste time. I'm sure it'll help you guys if I just write a check. Bechtelsheim made out a check for $100,000 in the name of Google Inc. But the check sat in Page's dorm room for a number of weeks before Google Inc. was actually incorporated on September 7th, 1998. Page and Bryn would raise an additional $1 million when David Cheriton kicked in some more money, as well as a few others, including former Netscape executive Ram Shriram and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Depositing Bechtelsheim's check was an act that finally turned Google from a research project into an actual startup. When Page and Bryn hired a fellow student by the name of Craig Silverstein to be Google's first official employee. They realized that Sergey's dorm room was not going to be large enough for the three of them to work in. And so Google's first official office became the garage of Susan Wojcicki and Dennis Troper at 232 Santa Margarita Avenue in Menlo Park. By renting out her garage for $1,700 a month, Wojcicki would grant Google the uniquely Silicon Valley bragging right of starting out its life in the same circumstances as companies ranging from Hewlett-Packard to Apple. In the bargain, Wojcicki would eventually end up as one of Google's earliest and longest-serving employees, and her sister Anne would eventually become Sergey Brin's wife. Page and Brin were now entrepreneurs, if perhaps still a little reluctantly. 
but they were not entrepreneurs in the mold of so many others in the dot-com era. Rather than blowing Google's funds on lavish launch parties or marketing campaigns, they stayed grad students at heart and instead invested all the money they had raised on continuing their project. And they did so with the efficiency of graduate school engineers. Instead of building out their system by buying software from Microsoft, they used the free Linux operating system instead. And also instead of splurging, say, $800,000 on setups from IBM or Oracle, they spent a mere 250000 to cobble together a rack of 88 computers that they would use to meet their number-crunching needs. At Stanford, they had begged, borrowed, and almost quite literally stolen the computers they needed to keep Google running, but now they simply switched to buying computers off the shelf from Fry's, the famous Silicon Valley electronics store. And then they fashioned these computers into a strung-together system of their own design. Part of this was simple frugality, a habit that would serve them well when the dot-com bubble burst in a few short years, But a lot of it was Page and Brin's ingrained Montessori philosophy. They never met an engineering problem that they couldn't solve themselves. Google didn't take pages from the established Silicon Valley playbook because, in a way, they had never bought into it. They didn't try to get big fast. Instead, Page and Brin were almost maniacally focused on endlessly iterating and improving upon their one big idea— making sure that it was the most comprehensive, reliable, and most importantly, speedy search engine in the world. Nothing that Google did in its first years distracted the company from improving on that core product. And more than cockiness, this confidence that they could do everything better proved in the coming years to be something of Google's secret sauce. Not only did Google's search engine continue to be superior to any rival in existence, but it slowly but surely widened the gap between itself, its version of search, and the competition. By having the confidence to do everything their way, Page and Brin were able to chart their own destiny. And their frugality paid off in efficiency. Some observers would later estimate that, quote, for every dollar spent, Google had three times more computer power than its competitors, end quote. Frugality and efficiency were not just virtues, they were also philosophical and aesthetic differentiators. Google's homepage was simply the Google logo, a text field to enter a search query, a search button to execute that query, and also a button that said, I'm feeling lucky, which automatically took you to the first result returned. If you went to the search results page, you only got a list of links, and that was it. No ads, no banners, no weather, no stock quotes, no horoscopes. All the rest of Google was just copious white space. In an age of portals where every other search site was a sea of distractions meant to keep you from, you know, actually getting to the page you were looking for and thereby leaving the portal... Google very much stood out from the crowd with its single-minded purpose and simplicity. Of course, that simplicity was entirely intentional. By keeping the pages almost exclusively text, Page and Brin could ensure that their pages loaded quicker than the search pages of their competitors. 
and expensive processing power wasn't wasted loading graphics. This all paid dividends many times over in Google's steady growth. By 1999, usage of the search engine was increasing by as much as 50% a month. From 100,000 searches a day at the beginning of that year, by the end of 99, Google was averaging 7 million searches per day. Overall traffic to the Google homepage was peanuts compared to the numbers at a site like Yahoo, but in the case of Google, its users came from word of mouth alone. Not a dime was spent on marketing or promotion. Rave reviews from the media turned people on to the service. The New Yorker said Google was the default search engine of the digital in-crowd. Time Magazine Digital said Google is to its competitors as a laser is to a blunt stick. And ordinary users simply told one another about how great and useful Google was. More often than not, once they gave it a try, users would become Google converts for life. An early article about Google in Fortune magazine from November of 1999 summed up many a new user's experience. Describing the site as inscrutable magic, journalist David Kirkpatrick offered this anecdote, quote, On the day of a recent American League playoff game, I typed in New York Yankees 1999 playoffs into both Google and AltaVista. The first listing at Google took me directly to data about that night's game. The first two at AltaVista linked to info about the 1998 World Series. Only at the third AltaVista link, via yet an additional link, did I get to that day's game. Kirkpatrick's conclusion, quote, Google really works, end quote. In that same article, Sergey Brin was quoted as boasting, we're building a way to search human knowledge. Again, there was that fearless faith in the power of ideas that Page and Brin had bonded over, but now it was shaping the scope of Google's ambition as a young company. That brashness continued to manifest itself when Google needed to raise yet more money. If Google was meant to organize all information in the world, it would need resources on a global scale. Despite the glut of search companies already on the market, Google by this point had gotten the attention of venture capitalists, and they were now ready to invest in these two refugees from academia. But supremely confident as ever, Page and Brin gave off the impression that they didn't really need anyone's help or money. In meetings with potential backers, the pair refused to divulge even basic details about how their service was operating. Their stonewalling even led one prominent venture capitalist to storm out of their office in anger. Salar Kemangar was an early employee who bore witness to Google's general evasiveness during the fundraising process. Salar remembered, quote, Larry and Sergey didn't have the language to say things nicely. They'd be kind of blunt and say, we can't tell you, and the VCs would get very frustrated. The truth was, Page and Brin did not want to take money from just any old VC. They only wanted the best. So they reached out to the two most prominent VC firms in the world, Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia Capital. 
the pair proposed that each firm, the blue chips of Silicon Valley Venture, take a co-equal stake in Google. Such a thing was not typically done, of course. There is usually only one lead investor in a round of startup financing. And quite frankly, both KP and Sequoia had enough clout on their own that they had never before deigned to share the spotlight on a round with another firm. Page and Bryn wanted the firms to split the round because that would allow them, as the founders, to maintain a majority share in the company and thereby retain control of their own destiny. They even had the temerity to issue an ultimatum. Either both firms would invest an equal $12.5 million in Google for a total of $25 million, take it or leave it, or Google would walk. On June 7, 1999, the VCs took the deal, and Kleiner's John Doerr and Sequoia's Mike Moritz joined Google's board of directors. The only concessions the money men had been able to wring out of Page and Brin was a promise to hire some experienced, quote, adult supervision to take over as CEO of the company at some point in the near future. This huge round of financing not only put Google firmly on the technology world's map, but it also went a long way towards ensuring the company's long-term survival. This war chest of money coming just before the dot-com bubble burst, combined with Larry and Sergey's frugal ways to mean that Google would survive the coming nuclear winter. Had Google waited a further year to raise money, it might not have been able to. And by virtue of being flush with cash when the rest of Silicon Valley was seemingly going belly up, Google was able to have its pick of talent when the dot-com layoffs began. Just as it had been frugal when others were profligate, Google also bucked prevailing dot-com habits when it came to hiring. The company put off drafting an army of sales and marketing people, as the other dot-coms tended to do, until much later. Instead, in 1999 and 2000, Google staffed up with, what else? Brainiacs. Larry and Sergey hired software engineers, hardware engineers, network engineers, mathematicians, even neurosurgeons. Just as with every other facet of their company, Page and Brin wanted only the very best. They wanted PhDs and scientists. Google would become notorious for the rigorous way that it interviewed and screened potential hires for its exacting selectiveness. For many years, every new employee was personally vetted by Bryn and Page themselves, who expected candidates to measure up to their own intellectual standard. We just hired people like us, Page said, without a trace of false modesty. Google was able to attract talent because it was nothing short of beloved in Silicon Valley. Here was an internet company that had solved a universally recognized problem through smart thinking alone. This created a reputational halo that was only enhanced by Larry and Sergey's increasingly bold and public enunciation of Google's mission, which was eventually formalized as, quote, an attempt to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, end quote. While so many dot-com companies claimed to be changing the world by offering cheaper dog food online, 
Here was a company that truly seemed revolutionary in the most expansive sense of that word. Ultimately, I view Google as a way to augment your brain with the knowledge of the world, Sergey Brin said. It helped that Google positioned itself as the anti-dot-com startup. Glitz, hype, and excess were out. Frugality, hard work, and earnestness were in. And when Google came up with its famous corporate motto, don't be evil, everyone in technology read between the lines and believed that Google was staking a claim to be the anti-Microsoft. Google did pick up a few habits from its dot-com brethren, but in typical Larry and Sergey fashion, it did so with a twist. By the time Google moved to its first truly professional digs, an office park in Mountain View that would be dubbed the Googleplex, a system of perks for Google's workers were put into place, but they were instituted with an eye towards productivity. The food in the cafeteria would always be free, with an in-house gourmet chef. Private bus lines picked up workers from around the valley to shuttle them to work. Masseuses roamed the hallways, and there were free fitness classes and gyms, and on and on. But every one of these perks were self-consciously provided as a way to keep workers motivated and productive. They weren't just freebies. The cafeteria meant that Google employees didn't have to leave the office in the middle of the day and could get back to work with ease. The shuttle buses had Wi-Fi on them, so employees could be productive on the way to and from the Googleplex. Healthy, clear-headed workers could do better coding, or that's how the thinking went. All of this combined to make Google the technology company to join right as the dot-com bubble burst. If you got hired at Google, it elicited envy from your peers, not only because they felt you were doing the most interesting work in technology, but because it meant you were among the best and the brightest. Anyone could get hired at a dot-com towards the end of the decade, but not everyone, even the smartest of the smart, could make the cut at Google. And when the bubble burst, and it was seemingly the only company still hiring, it was almost like the dream of the 90s was alive in the Googleplex and nowhere else. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on iTunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us as always there's more info on our website www.internethistorypodcast.com the show's twitter handle is at nethistorypod and my personal twitter is at brianmcc thanks for listening